When I was a child, I was able to, you know, go fishing with my father. And we went to an island that has turtles. That island I went to visit with my children just a couple years ago. And it has reduced in size by two-thirds. Most of the people living there have left. But what we observed was the turtles came to lay their eggs that night. And uh, they were telling us that most of those eggs won't survive because the beach is, of course, it's much smaller, and they laid them in the tidal zone so they would not be able to hatch. And you think about the fate of the turtles, but what about the people and the culture and the language and what makes those islands unique? What happens to them? There's a chief there. Is he still going to be a chief when that island disappears? Their language that's unique. Is that still going to exist when they have to move to the main island? Hello, and apologies there for the sound quality of the clip, but that was one of the many passionate voices from leaders at the summit on addressing the existential threats of sea level rise, which was held in New York recently, which I attended. I'm Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI and one of the directors of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, RESI, the network behind this podcast. And I'm Matt Bishop, uh, an academic based at the University of Sheffield in Northern England, and I'm also one of the directors of RESI. For the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the problem of sea level rise, the challenges it poses to sustainable development in, especially low-lying island nations, uh, and what might be done about it. Welcome to Small Islands Big Picture, because what happens to them alters the big picture for all of us, wherever we might be. Sea level rise has been accelerating over the last century and could reach up to 1.1 metres by the end of this century if the world continues to release greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere at the current rate. That's according to a report that was issued last year by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there are various different scenarios and projections in that report. But this 1.1 metre sea level rise is looking quite likely. So I guess one of the questions for our discussion today is what's that going to generate? Are we going to reach key tipping points? And what difference would it make if the transition to low carbon energy and net zero targets are achieved? Could that bring down that level of sea level rise? I think that's right, Emily. And this is not just a problem for communities in small islands themselves. This is a genuinely global challenge. Um, Rising global sea levels induced by climate change is not just a problem for people living on small islands, although it's a huge problem for them. It's a big problem for humanity as a whole. So it's likely to lead to more intensified disasters, the exacerbation of natural hazards, and it could even trigger geopolitical conflicts because of changing coastal borders. This was a point made recently by Indonesia's top diplomat, Retno LP Marsudi, at the 78th United Nations General Assembly. Assembly. A resettlement of so-called climate refugees is likely to become a significant problem. At least 2 billion people are going to be affected globally by rising oceans, of course. Not all of those will move. Many will be internally displaced within states. But for many SIDS, the problem is more immediate. Um, In many cases, those people can't be resettled domestically as island populations in larger 
territorial states can be because there's nowhere to go. These are small, low-lying territories. Some are even facing what Milia Vaha of the University of the South Pacific calls state extinction or literal, and I'm quoting her here, disappearance from the face of the earth with unique cultures, languages and customs then potentially disappearing with them. This is further complicated by the fact that populations and states are not quite the same thing. So some states might survive even if their people end up moving somewhere else. So this is an exceptionally complex picture, uh, a fascinating one and a troubling one too. We're going to begin today with our Island Voices segment. Uh, Dr Michelle Scobie from Trinidad and Tobago is one of our other co-directors of the RESI network and she's an expert on environmental governance. Sea level rise is really crucial for small island developing states. Some research that I did recently in Toko, which is a rural coastal community, shows that the people of this community are resilient. They faced environmental challenges and the more recent impacts of climate change, such as sea level rise, are added on top of previous challenges that they have had to face and have faced with, with resilience. But understanding context, that's really important. And one of the things that we saw in the research on Toko is that the people of Toko face many other challenges. So for them, climate change is important, but it is not the only or maybe paramount issue. They face problems that are common in rural communities, distance from markets, lack of jobs, lack of infrastructure, lack of opportunities with education, etc. And these are important issues for these, these communities. The communities also feel that they need more agency in determining national and global policies on issues like climate change. So by way of our explainer this week on this topic, we've invited an expert, Ian Fry, who is the UN's Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights in the Context of Climate Change. He is also the former ambassador of Tuvalu for climate change and the environment, and Tuvalu is one of the world's lowest-lying states. Recently, Ian called on countries across the world to offer legal protection to people displaced across international borders due to climate change. Ian, welcome to Small Islands Big Picture. Thank you for inviting me. So in this section, we're going to break down the subject of sea level rise into digestible chunks to help people listening to understand the legal and human rights aspects of sea level rise, resettlement and statehood, ultimately. So let me start with the first question. Which places in the world are most at risk of sea level rise? And sort of roughly how many people are affected well, I guess as far as the islands are concerned, the coral atoll nations are probably the most vulnerable. You know, in, in Tuvalu's case, for instance, its highest point above sea level is only four metres. So there are, you know, a number of coral atoll nations in the Pacific. Kiribati, uh, Marshall Islands are two others. And some of the other island countries have coral atoll populations. Maldives in the, in the Indian Ocean is another, and there are other in the Caribbean that are coral atolls as well. I, I can't give you an exact number of the uh, number of people that fit within that category, but you know, it, it, it'd be in the hundreds of thousands, I guess, at least. So number nine, what are SIDS governments doing, Ian, to solve the challenge and what constraints do they face? Well, the real challenge, you know, is a physical one to start off with. You know, coral atolls were 
sort of built around, you know, what were volcanoes? You know, in Tuvalu's case, it's a ring of coral atoll around an old volcano that's sunk into the sea. So it drops off very steeply off one side. So trying to find, you know, protection measures is not easy. At the moment, Tuvalu is doing a lot of work of trying to reclaim land by, by, you know, dredging the sand in the middle of the lagoon and raising the elevation of the land. And the Maldives are doing that as well. Tuvalu has nine inhabited islands and currently they're only working on the capital. So the overall costs of trying to you know, raise and elevate the, the, all of the nine inhabited islands would be a real challenge. Question number eight. How is the international community responding to help SIDS with this particular challenge? And what more could it be doing? You know, that there are some funding through the Green Climate Fund to help countries. So, But that's, you know, only for a small portion of the country is able to do that. So, that, you know, a lot more money is required to elevate these islands above rising sea levels. And that requires a lot of financial support. And at the moment, that's not coming. Number seven, what are the problems with international law as it stands in terms of protecting populations affected by this challenge? Well, if sea level is going to, you know, remove territory, you know, through sea level rise, then countries are slowly getting smaller in size particularly under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. You know, it came into being well before sea level rise was considered. So there's efforts to try and, you know, get acknowledgement under the Convention on the Law of the Sea or or generally under customary international law to say, once a country has established its baseline, which is the sort of the boundary of the country and its 200-mile economic exclusion zone, then that should remain static, irrespective of sea level rise. So it's a, it's, it's a legal principle that we're trying to get established you know, through customary international law. And we've been to a number of international meetings where the, the Pacific Island leaders have made a declaration around that. And I guess the next question, how confident are you that this is actually going to happen, that we're going to see this cha- these changes in international law? Well, the, you know, I attended a conference earlier this year and the International Law Commission is looking into this issue and they're going to come up with a report. And the indications from the commissioners I met, they seem to think that this was a reasonable approach. I mean, there's a reluctance to amend the, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea because it took so long to, to negotiate and, and people are reluctant to open it up. But if we, if we get this as sort of accepted as a, a general principle of international law, then I, th- I think it has a reasonable chance of being accepted. So the next question, uh, sort of two parts, what, what does your role in, involve as a special rapporteur? And, and kind of linked to that, how do you see the prospects for promoting and protecting human rights in a changing climate going forward? How hopeful are you that you're, you're going to be successful in that endeavour? My, my functions are quite varied. You know, I have to prepare two reports each year, one to the Human Rights Council and one to the UN General Assembly around some thematic issues. So my last report to Human Rights Council was looking at climate change migration. My report that's coming up to the UN General Assembly is looking at climate change litigation and intergenerational justice. 
So this is trying to find legal means of guaranteeing the rights of future generations. I can write what's called allegation letters, so I can write letters of complaint to countries. I, I recently wrote to the UK government uh, on a complaint about the treatment of environmental human rights defenders, the ones who hung some banners off a bridge over the Thames. They've been sentenced to four years jail, which is a, a huge you know, overreaction by the UK government. I can do country visits, so I've just returned from a visit to Honduras to look at the implications of climate change there, and, and particularly around the issue of migration. You know, I'll be going to the Philippines in November, and I'll be going to the climate change COP as well. And that's where I do a lot of, I guess, my advocacy work is working with other groups, you know, trying to promote the issue of human rights around climate change. And, you know, there are just simple basic rights of right to life, right to food, water, shelter that are fundamental rights that climate change is impacting. And, and so, you know, we just have to make that connection that people's lives are being affected by climate change. Number two. How could the kind of legal protections that you have called for be operationalised and what are the barriers to doing so? Well, as far as the migration one, uh, you know, in my report, I suggested there needed to be some way of giving legal protection to people displaced across international borders as a consequence of climate change. They're not defined as refugees under the Refugee Convention and therefore, to some extent, fall through the cracks as far as legal protections are concerned. I'm was recommending that they develop an optional protocol under the Refugee Convention to give the proper protection of those people. Migration is obviously a very sensitive issue. It's a hard nut to crack. One of the key issues that I'm trying to push for is to get greater access to court systems so that people can litigate their rights. And of course, for Indigenous peoples, you know, getting access to courts uh, you know, represents additional challenges as far as languages and, and being able to understand uh, legal systems. And a final question, number one, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who might aspire to a career in international diplomacy or, or climate action? What would you recommend to them? From my own personal situation, I, I started as an NGO, and, you know, gaining that experience is invaluable. So I, I worked for Greenpeace many years ago and, and you learn the system a lot quicker than, than any others. Of course, you know, studying international diplomacy, you know, law is, is, a, is a good way to get into it. But, you know, certainly there are a lot of opportunities with non-government organisations, which I, I strongly encourage people to get involved with. Well, huge thanks to Ian Fry for taking us through some of the key humanitarian and legal elements relating to this challenge of sea level rise there. Before we move on to get deeper into this topic, we thought we would pause briefly here and talk about what else is going on in the wider SIDS universe and how Resi is contributing to it. So what have you been up to since the last podcast, Emily? Yeah, I've been in New York for the UN General Assembly week and also at the same time this year it was the Climate Ambition Summit and in the same week as well is also a New York Climate Week. So lots going on. I went to this high-level meeting of leaders of Pacific Island nations to talk about 
sea level rise and resettlement, which was you know, really interesting just to see how the kind of common view and approach to that issue is that, you know, people don't want to move anywhere, at least the governments are not talking about resettlement as a as, as a policy. They want support and to be protected and to, you know, receive resources and finance to help adapt to life on islands and not have to move anywhere. So I thought that was really interesting in terms of where the sort of narrative is at at the moment. I was also organising a, a roundtable with representatives of small island developing states and, and some of the developed countries that have seats on the board of the Green Climate Fund to talk about how to improve access for SIDS to climate finance, which is a really big problem. And also, one other thing, we also did a kind of preview of a film that I've been working on, a short documentary about Dominica's resilience journey, which was really great fun. Um, so there's going to be more screenings of that documentary this year and we'll be taking it to COP. Um, so yeah, lots going on. What have you been up to, Matt? Wonderful. What have I been up to? Well, I haven't been in New York, unfortunately, but I've been focused on some of our resi publications for the last few weeks. So we published a briefing paper a month or so ago called A Global Bargain for Resilient Prosperity in Small Island Developing States. And this crystallised, I guess, a bunch of thoughts we'd had over the last few months about what needs to happen in terms of improving the international environment for small islands going forward. We wrote that with the kind of fourth international conference on SIDS, which takes place in Antigua Barbuda in the middle of 2024. And so some of our colleagues went to the various uh, regional and interregional preparatory meetings, including yourself. You went to the interregional, didn't you? And presented some of the findings from this, which we hope will influence the conversation. On the back of that, I've been working with one of our other resi co-directors, Courtney, to try and help shape what we're calling our expert dialogues. And essentially, we're having a series of conversations between uh, people working in the kind of policy arena around planning for the for the fourth international conference and also our kind of wider affiliate network of expert academics. And if anybody is listening that is keen to be involved in this process, please drop us a line. We're quite happy to feed your expertise and insights in. Courtney's preparing a, a summary paper from our first expert dialogue, and then that's underpinning a kind of wider conversation which we hope will end next year in what we're calling a future forum which will be a kind of academic and policy conversation where we'll have a load of new papers written hopefully to again shape particular kinds of the conversation so my feet are on terra firma at the moment but we're writing an awful lot of stuff and if anybody's interested links to some of these documents will be in the show notes each episode, we invite expert guests to help us understand headline-grabbing stories and paint the bigger picture about an issue. I'm delighted to welcome two guests today. We have Dr. Tammy Tabe. She's a social anthropologist at the East-West Centre in Hawaii and previously at the University of the South Pacific in Suva, Fiji. Her research is about historical relocations of Pacific Island people, their identity and issues concerning the diaspora and climate change induced migration and displacement. We also have with us 
John Barnett, who is a professor in the School of Geography at Melbourne University. He is a political geographer with research interests and focus on social impacts and responses to environmental change. And he leads the Australian Research Council funded Future Islands Project, which looks at adaptation actions in atolls. Welcome to you both. So let me start off with a big question for you both. Um, what do you think is the greatest global threat from sea level rise? Why do we need to be so concerned about it in the Pacific Islands? I think it's a it, it's a big question to ask, but it also depends which part of the world you are. And I think for me, particularly if you're in the Pacific Islands, it's a big question, but also one of the greatest concerns for Pacific Island communities, countries, as well as people, because most of our islands are located along the coast. And so sea level rise is considered one of the greatest threats, not only to communities along the coast, but also to the source of livelihoods that a lot of the people depend on. And a lot of the Pacific Island countries' economies also depend on marine ecosystem as well for the economy. So while it is one of the major concerns, it is also critical to consider other existing issues as well that sea level rise exacerbates. Yeah, I think, as, as Tammy said, the exposure of people in the Pacific to sea level rise is very high, given that most people live on the coast or near the coast. Most freshwater systems, groundwater systems uh, are also on the coast and so prone to salinization. Certainly sea level rise is, you know, is, a, is a long, slow problem that it's very hard to adapt to. But when we focus only on sea level rise, we ignore, as Tammy was implying, some of the immediate problems now. We see huge problems of drought across the Pacific that are causing you know, significant health and livelihood problems already. And so the problem of climate change is, comes through multiple environmental stresses you know, impacting on the particular geographies of the Pacific. Lots of numbers get thrown around. It is worth noting that through really strong action from Pacific Island countries in the Climate Change Convention that we are slowly bending the curve on emissions. And the Climate Action Tracker says if every country meets its national determined contributions, we'll be on a somewhere between an SSP 2.45 or SSP 1.26 scenario, somewhere between those two ranges, which would lead to sea level rise of somewhere between 32 and 76 centimetres by 2100 in the Central Pacific. That's good news and bad news. 76 centimetres, or maybe a bit higher, up to 90 centimetres, is an awful lot of sea level rise to adapt to, but 76 centimetres is an awful lot better than some of the numbers that used to get thrown around, like two metres. John, you said that, you know, the multiple stresses, it's not just a question of sea level rise, but even within sea level rise, there are multiple stresses, aren't there? Can you talk a bit more about the various different challenges that come from sea level rise itself and how they manifest over the short and long term. Yeah, so, and again, this depends on geography, but we, we do a lot of work on atolls, for example. So one of the things that sea level rise does is, it, you know, it increases flood risk. So when there are extreme sea level events because there's high tides or storm surges, those extreme sea levels are much higher. And so the evidence so far, given the amount of sea level rise we've had, suggests that not too many islands are losing land area, but many of them are changing shape and the shape of the islands themselves changes. And so we see places where, you know, in traditional burial grounds where people have buried their ancestors for hundreds and hundreds of years are now eroded. So places that were always safe are now no longer safe. Again, in the debate about this, people say, well, you know, so if islands aren't, you know, so far shrinking or losing land area, then that's not a problem. It's a massive problem if all your infrastructure is on a coast that's eroding. It's a massive problem if you know, extreme sea levels are inundating everything on your island already. So adaptation is, is still 
a really significant problem, even if the manifestations of silver rise aren't quite what were anticipated 20 years ago. So do you see any big differences in how different countries and societies are approaching this challenge? Are they going about responding to sea level rise in, in different ways? Yeah, I think a lot of Pacific Island countries and even the region as it as a whole, they're doing a lot of things to respond to this threat. And I think when we talk about sea level rise, we're always talking about, you know, possibilities of relocation. And while that is an important thing to consider in terms of adaptation strategy, I think even before people get to the point that they need to move, a lot of them will stop moving because they no longer have access to food resources, to clean water, to good water because of inundation. And a lot of emphasis, particularly for Pacific Island countries, you know, sea level rise is often magnified. And I think because we're a small island state, but I think there are issues like flooding, drought, and other issues that have also been contributed by climate change that also needs to needs a lot of attention. And I think adaptation interventions that have been done across the Pacific, there's a lot of funding being invested in the Pacific Islands as well. And I think Pacific Island countries are working collectively as well with partners to really try and minimize and mitigate most of the this impact. So one of, one of the most kind of radical adaptations is the idea of perhaps moving societies you know if a place does become completely uninhabitable over time and you see in the news you know stories of different countries setting up things like sovereign wealth funds and so on for when that perhaps becomes you know something that has to happen do you see that kind of thing as a plausible long-term solution to these challenges actually moving a population out of a territory into a into a new territory and what are some of the challenges with that yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's very important to listen to what people in the region have to say, and I think there's a whole conversation here about resettlement that goes on without actually asking people in the region, and you don't have to pay attention very long to hear what the region thinks about this. And so the leaders of countries like the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, all very clear that resettlement is not an option. It's very easy for the international community to then say, and it's been said in Australia, well, we'll just relocate people and that's the answer. Well, that's very ironic in a country like Australia where we resettled, you know, most of our indigenous population. It didn't work very well. People belong to their homelands. They belong to their ancestors. We've got data, you know, we've been doing research on this issue on and off over the years. You know, people would say, I'd rather die than leave. These are my homelands. These are where my ancestors are buried. That My ancestors made this island for me. I have a, a duty to look after this land and stay in this land. Our heritage is here. Resettling us would be an impact of climate change, not an adaptation. So now we're proposing a policy response that makes them leave. And the danger, of course, is, you know, if that's the only solution, then we undermine the commitment to mitigation and we undermine the commitment to adaptation. The answer is we resettle them. So it doesn't really matter whether we stabilise it. 1.5 or 1.8 or 2.5 does it because they're going to move anyway. And it doesn't really matter if we invest in a desal plant or uh, a solar PV unit or food security because eventually they're going to have to leave anyway. So when you say that resettlement is the option, you completely undermine two really important principles in the international system. One is about sustainability, that you do things so that things can last in perpetuity. Now there's no sustainability in the management of islands that people are going to be resettled. Two, really importantly, we are, we're ignoring what they themselves say. And three, it's very clear that people have a human right to live on their homelands. So international actors who are saying, well, you know, we'll just resettle these people or resettle them as an option, they're effectively saying Pacific Islanders don't have any human rights. They might as well say, it's okay to kill all the women and children 
it's a similar sort of human rights violation. On the other side of that, and people will point to this, you know, migration is, it is a characteristic of most many Pacific Island societies. They are, they are even pre-colonial times, highly mobile people. And there are underlying trends of migration going on from rural to urban areas from, and from some countries internationally. There's no particular pattern of climate change on that migration. People have looked and you can't see a fingerprint of climate change on that migration. And secondly, the fact of that migration doesn't in any way violate people's human rights to have a home to return to. And a lot of that migration specific is, is return migration. It's very circular and people still identify from the places they come from. They still return to those places. They need to have those places to return to. People don't want to leave. That being resettled to somebody else's land is always very bad. That people have a human right to remain in their islands and the international community has an obligation to ensure that through mitigation and adaptation. So, John, you mentioned obviously people wanting to stay, but if they do want to leave, do you see that there are any good initiatives or examples out there of support to people, adaptation for people who who want to leave or, or for those who want to stay to help them cope with sea level rise? I'm sure Tammy will have things to say. I'll give her time by answering this question. Uh, it depends a bit on what you mean by adaptation. And so there are things that happen that reduce people's vulnerability to climate change. And so we see in the Pacific that countries that have stronger ties to to metropolitan powers, I'm thinking here about Niue or Palau or to some degree the Cook Islands, countries that are, are sort of wealthier, where people have more choices, where there's more investment in education, healthcare, people are typically less vulnerable. So there's something here about forms of development and investment and associations with rich countries that improve people's wealth and human capital formation that tends to reduce their vulnerability as opposed to countries that don't have those options because their incomes are lower, they're more remote or they don't have colonial ties. So coming back to the, to the population story, there is, I think, an interesting argument to be made about creating a Pacific migration union where there's free mobility of labour and anybody from the Pacific is, can move to New Zealand or Australia or the US and be treated as citizens for work purposes and so on. So that, I think, would be you know, a really interesting adaptation thing that gives people choices because vulnerability ultimately is associated with a lack of choices. People who have choices are less vulnerable. In terms of the formal business of adaptation in the Pacific, I think you would hear two different things if you were to ask donors and if you were to ask people in the region. Tammy, I think, will you know, have perhaps better things to say about this, but I think there's an awful lot of managing out on behalf of donors to say, we do good things, there's a lot of money being spent on adaptation, we're doing all this stuff on climate change. The reality is uh, there's a lot of double counting of aid calling disaster management things, adaptation things, calling water things, adaptation things. So the number's inflated. Secondary, a lot of that is driven by consultants, as usual with development processes, you know, the degrees to which the benefits stay in local communities, the degrees to which they're responding to what people want, the degrees to which, you know, money stays behind and, and investments stay behind, I think are really quite questionable in a lot of adaptation in the region. That's my kind of take from seeing this over 20 years, that there's an awful lot of marketing and branding and perhaps not so much really doing. Yeah, I think that's a good point, John. And I think when we talk about adaptation, it's like looking at the well-being of Pacific Islands people. And, you know, well-being is holistic. It's a communal thing. It's a relational thing. It has to do with the land. It has to do with the environment. It has to do with kingship. I think one of the things that I guess we don't often think when we talk about adaptation, you know, it, it's, it's always about the economy is it always about building better infrastructure? It's always about, um, you know, the money. I mean, if we look closely at it, a lot of the funding goes back again to the sources. A good example is like, you know, having 
nurses in Kiribati work in Australia. There are lack of nurses, there's lack of investment into the hospital. A lot of the patients are being sent to Fiji or to India. So Kiribati is diverting funding again, and I don't know where the source of funding comes from, but diverting funding again into another country. And so, you know, resources are sort of like just coming through the country and going back out. I mean, climate change is a major issue in the Pacific Islands, but so is health. It comes back to the question of, should we try to focus on improving people's health, health infrastructure, as well as education that can really contribute to people's resilience and adaptation uh, rather than just focusing on, you know, just climate change, sea level rise and every other thing that seems to flow from climate change. Yeah, I mean, well said, Tammy. There are doctors and nurses picking fruit in Australia at the moment, you know, from the region. There's something going wrong there with that. And, and it's a it's a good observation, I think, that, you know, on the one hand, we're not stimulating adaptation and enabling, you know, resilience in islands, but all we are doing is sort of, you know, meeting deficits in our agricultural labour force in Australia and New Zealand with skilled workers from the Pacific. It's not, it doesn't seem right, does it? So our huge thanks to Tammy Tabe and John Barnett there for that fascinating conversation. Um, we now move on to our segment called No Stupid Questions. With so much misinformation around, we wanted to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to ask us any questions that you're thinking about regarding the risks and challenges facing small island states. Uh, as we've already heard in the podcast, the legal protections afforded to people affected by this particular climate change threat, i.e. sea level rise, are the subject of intense ongoing debate. And this feeds into wider, and we would suggest sometimes quite darker, questioning of the merits of migration, including even the UN refugee conventions themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really clear from the conversations we've been having on in, in this episode that a key aspect of, of sea level rise and the politics around it is that there's going to be people moving either ahead of these impacts and sort of resettlement programs and negotiating all of that or individuals you know moving because they have to because their you know livelihoods are no longer sustainable and their lives and livelihoods are threatened so you know this is a going to become an increasingly big problem for everybody they're not just in the pacific atolls what should the world be doing collectively to manage this? Like, what do these these particular issues around climate change? I guess are going to have an effect on the global sort of migration system and how we respond, right? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, Ian said earlier in the podcast that it's a it's a hard nut to crack, and I think that's <laughs> an understatement, a serious understatement. I mean, I mean, the first thing I suppose would be that the best solution is to just let's try and meet our emissions targets and stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which is what small island developing states through AOSIS have collectively asked for since the mid 90s, and then that will limit population movements not least because as as we've talked about already in this podcast you know people don't really want to move so there's a lot of panic I think in particularly northern countries about migration but yeah some people do want to move for a better life which they always have done historically but lots of people just want to stay at home their island identity is really important to them yeah I was also just struck by the idea that we don't really know what you know how people feel about this and I think John and Tammy were both we're talking about that, you know, some people may want to, younger generations are moving already for, you know, education opportunities and, and job opportunities and others won't want to and they all feel very sort of 
firmly connected to the place that they live. So I think we certainly need to listen more to people and, and, and get a better sense of the very different views that people have on this and not try and find a one-size-fits-all solution, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, there's, and there's, there are fears about migration in what are called in the literature sending countries as well, right? Because governments worry that they lose their most skilled and brightest people, particularly when they've been trained expensively to work in the healthcare sector or whichever other sector it might be, education and so on. But I think the other thing that, I mean, if you read a lot of the literature on on migration, certainly from the Caribbean, which I've probably read more than I have on the Pacific, Uh, the emphasis is often on migration being a circular thing. So they talk much less about brain drain. They talk much more about brain circulation these days. So the community of people from a particular territory exists diasporically across borders. So someone might move to a northern country. They might go to the UK or the US for a period of time, and then they might go home for a bit, and then they might go back for a bit. And they kind of live with one foot in each place and those relationships of strong community bonds and those those networks are really really important for maintaining kind of development and you know sending money back and that's really good point i think the sending money back is a really critical part of this story because i was just talking to somebody who works in kiribati related to a project that i'm working on and i'll be spending some time there in the next couple of weeks and he was saying that you know a lot of young people go to australia they have their opportunities to study there and they're happy to kind of break the the bond basically they have to pay back money if they don't return and they're happy to do that because they get good jobs in australia and can easily afford to to make that payment um but then they continue to send money back and their families don't want to move out there with them they'd rather stay where they are and get you know money sent back to help them if climate change kind of intensifies that and makes it even more attractive to live somewhere else then we would assume that 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 those sort of patterns will continue to to flourish so we expect sort of an evolution or more of the same maybe rather than a sort of radical shift to something different yeah i think that's right i mean if we think about development i mean what is development we think about the kind of development and adaptation quite a lot at the kind of state level you know what are countries doing to adapt to climate change but people are hugely adaptive as well and a lot of the solution to this challenge will come from people making individual decisions to or communities making collective decisions to improve the lives of everybody and also the individuals themselves and one thing that i think is left out of the debate certainly in the uk is that this is a really important form of development assistance as well so we think about development aid as about giving money and giving support directly to governments but actually one of the best forms of development aid is allowing people to move to find work opportunities there was a great book published by the economist Lant Pritchett about 20 years ago called let their people come where he essentially said that this is this is really a great form of development assistance allowing people to come and earn money which ultimately they will probably move back to their home territory one day but that that's really really important and it's kind of free and it's particularly important for countries like the UK which is that we have hugely aging populations low birth rate declining birth rate people getting older and we can't support our aging populations we can't support their pensions we don't have enough people to work in the care sector and other industries so 
so it's a no-brainer really isn't it that we, that we need labor we need people to come and this is a great way of allowing people to support their families yeah absolutely and so maybe we should be worrying more about the people who are not able to move it's often the the, the poorest and most vulnerable individuals who are not able to migrate and they're the ones who you know should be the focus of the attention rather than those who are able to move and do have the capacity in the agency to do so I think that's right. There's a difficult kind of unrecognised class politics to all of this, right? So, you know, in many small island countries, it, it is the poorest people who don't have dual citizenship or green cards or ability. They don't have the, the social capital to be able to leave. They also probably live on the most marginal lands. They live on the places that are going to be most heavily affected by by climate change, floods and all of the other kind of physical problems that we know of. So that's a really important point, Emily, for sure. So next month on Small Islands Big Picture, we're going to be talking about the problem of debt and why so many small island developing states are amongst the most heavily indebted in the world. And here's a clue, it's not really their fault. It's not about mismanagement of public finances. And we're going to talk about what we can do to address high levels of debt long term. So we want to hear from you. Uh, is there anything you think that we should be covering in the podcast? Or is there a question, a burning question that you have that you might like us to deal with in No Stupid Questions? Uh, please feel free to send in your comments and ideas to info at odi.org.uk with small islands in the subject line. Please feel free to rate, subscribe and of course share our podcast widely. You've been listening to Small Islands Big Picture from the Resi Network at ODI. <laughs>